0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's get to it. Daniel chapter 11 is where we find ourselves as we're ending our sermon through this Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel and. We left off finishing chapter 10 last week, and we're going to cover two chapters, 11 and 12 today, which are in particularly long chapters, but fret not, we're not going to read through all of Daniel chapter 11 and 12, we're going to zero in on just a few verses, summarize the message of these chapters for you, and wrap up this, what I hope has been a very encouraging series through this Old Testament book that God intended to put steel in the spine of His people As they endure difficult days in exile. If you're not, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the seat rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, keep that Bible as our gift to you. And if you're not used to looking up uh, books in the Bible, particularly Daniel, might be a bit difficult to find. You can find the page numbers that, that Daniel, in the copy of the Bible that you have in front of you, will be at. It's either on page 585 or 748 as you 're finding that, uh, let me draw your attention to verse thirty two of daniel eleven we 're just going to read a few verses and i 'm going to pray and then we 're going to bring to a landing this series through Daniel next week, uh, will Hawk will preach uh, a standalone message, and then after that we 're going to begin for the fall a series through the a new Testament letter of 1 Timothy, which I've really been looking forward to. It is a little clearer than all of the visions and things that we've been going through in Daniel. So um, from a preacher's perspective, I'll be able to breathe a little bit. Uh, so let me, let me read Daniel 11, starting in verse 32 through 35, and then we'll pray. If you're new with us, it may be confusing at first, but along the way we'll catch you up to the context of where we are in this beautiful Old Testament book. Verse 32. He, speaking of this Greek ruler, Antiochus IV, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Well, pray with me that the Lord would help us understand this text. Father, I think of that old historic prayer of the church. I pray it for us this morning. What we know not, teach us. What we have not and truly need, grant us. And what we are not, make us by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit, all for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, for the salvation of those that do not know you. Do these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have been working through this Old Testament book, which is a story of a man named Daniel and the Jewish people as they have found themselves, because of their own disobedience, in captivity, first by the Babylonians and this king named Nebuchadnezzar. So God, in the beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis in particular, created a people, created the Jewish Nation Israel out of nothing, not because they deserved anything. He just grabbed one man named Abraham out of his wandering in the desert and said, Through you, I am going to make a nation, a people for myself. And through this nation, I am going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And I'm going to pour my love into you so that you would be a picture of what it means to be the people of God. And I am going to redeem. All of my people through you, this one family that would become a nation. And in fact, God does that. He makes this man a nation and they are formed and he gives them laws and he gives them a land and he begins to bless them. But... They, like the people of God throughout the centuries, even now, even the church today, rebel against God and do not follow His ways. And so God warns them that if they continue in their disobedience, He is going to give them by His hand. He is going to give them over to a foreign army, in this case the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are going to take God's people into captivity. And that is exactly what happens. And that's where the book of Daniel begins. Daniel and his Jewish compatriots are in captivity. They are in exile, carried away from Jerusalem. Babylonian, the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire have destroyed Jerusalem. They've destroyed the temple. And they have carried God's people into captivity. And the rest of the book is about God's people... Living faithfully in exile. Living in a place that is not ultimately intended to be their home. And we've been talking about the many parallels that that this has with our existence today. Even though most of us in this room may be American by birth, America is ultimately not our home. We are citizens of heaven. And, and the Christian life in 2016... Is very much like the life of Daniel and his friends in Babylon thousands of years ago. It is a life lived in exile as we are waiting for the final victory of God to bring his people faithfully and finally home. And so during this exile God gives this man Daniel strength and and he gives him visions to encourage him that he is still with his people. And one of the visions that God gives Daniel, in particular, he gives it to him twice. In Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, he gives him these pictures. One time of a statue, and then in Daniel chapter 7 of four beasts, this statue made of different kinds of stone, and then four different types of stone, and then these beasts, these four different types of beasts. And we, came, we come to find out that these visions represent kingdoms. Successive human kingdoms that will come and will be in charge of the world, will be in control and will harass God's people. But God promises that ultimately through these successive kingdoms that come, God is ultimately in control. And so before these kingdoms even arise, God is telling them that this is what's going to happen. And so these four kingdoms, we know now as we look back historically, are the Babylonians that that were the ones that had taken Daniel into exile. And then after the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians come and conquer the Babylonians and take the Jewish people now as their captives. And after the Medo-Persians, then uh, come the Greeks. And the Greeks then defeat the Medo-Persians. And then after the Greeks come, the Roman Empire. And so we see this successive uh, marching on of human kingdoms that before they even rise to power, God is saying to Daniel, this is what's going to happen. And he uses this phrase, even in chapter 11 and 12, that at the appointed time. So God is reminding Daniel that I am in complete control of human history. And in fact, Now looking back on it, even though for Daniel it was in the future, we see that this is exactly what happens. And here in Daniel chapter 11 and 12... God is giving Daniel another vision. And in this vision, it's not a new vision, but rather God is zooming down in, speaking through this angelic visitor. He is zooming down in for Daniel in these third and fourth kingdoms, in these Medo-Persian and Greek kingdoms. And he is giving Daniel an utter and really fine detail what is going to happen with these kingdoms and the kings that are going to come and kings from the north and the south and he describes these battles that will happen hundreds of years in the future so daniel's probably in around 500 bc right now and in daniel 11 primarily is really a historical record of battles that will be fought within the greek empire in about 300 years with really incredible detail in fact, Daniel chapter 11 is one of the chapters in the Bible that has caused liberal Bible scholars to believe that Daniel didn't actually write Daniel because there is no way that Daniel could have been able to record with detail the things that Daniel chapter 11 speaks about, which are three to 400 years in advance. And so they say there's absolutely no way that this could be because how could anybody know these things? Well, exactly, liberal scholars. There's no way anybody could know these things unless it was the Holy Spirit working through Daniel to give him the vision of these things. And in Daniel chapter 11, where we read in verse 32, we are at the point where this Greek ruler named Antiochus IV has risen to power. And he is this Greek king. And it's about 160 or so B.C., about 400 years in the future for Daniel, and he is a wicked, wicked man. And we see that Antiochus, as we've talked about in the past, this real historical figure, in a way, becomes a kind of picture of the antichrist he becomes a kind of type in the old testament and the way he treats god's people with horrific brutality he becomes a kind of foreshadow of the end of the age this ruler that will come on the scene that we see that paul speaks about in the new testament Primarily in Second Thessalonians chapter two of this Antichrist that will come and harass and treat God's people with utter brutality. And we pick up here in verse 32, where this Antiochus is seducing God's people with flattery and is trying to draw them away from obeying God and observing the covenant, right? So what has happened is Antiochus is this wild, crazy Greek ruler who really is calling himself God. In fact, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which is basically God manifest in the flesh. He was not short on ego. Right? We think we have maybe presidential candidates that are kind of like, you know, egotistical. Well, Antiochus is calling himself basically God in the flesh. That's what the, kind of the name he took, okay? And so he is trying to conquer all the known world at that time. Well, right before this verse, he has this interaction, this battle that he's fighting with the Egyptians and the Romans, and he gets punked. There's no other way to put it. In fact, legend has it is that this Roman ruler has all these ships at the bay and Antiochus is on the battlefield kind of negotiating with this Roman ruler and the Roman ruler, just to show Antiochus how how much in charge he is, draws a circle around Antiochus in the dirt and he says, before you leave this circle, decide what you're going to do. You're either going to go back your homeland with your tail between your legs and you're not going to give us any more trouble or we're going to kill you. And even though Antiochus' ego was about the size of Texas, he made a good choice in that moment. He said, okay, I'll go back. And he goes back to his homeland, but he's frustrated and he's mad because he got punked on the battlefield by this Roman general. And so now... As bullies are apt to do, he's going to take out his frustration on the Jewish people that have returned to their homeland, and he begins to pour out his wrath and fury on them. Okay, so that's the historical setting of what's going on here in Daniel chapter 11, that remember is about three to four hundred years in the future of when Daniel is living. And it all, historically, we now, looking back retroactively, takes place. And notice, I just want us to see three things in one sentence, and then we're going to be done, and we're going to have four people baptized, and we're going to celebrate the gospel together. I want us to see this description that this heavenly messenger gives Daniel about the people that, in that day, are facing Antiochus. And this applies, this is meant to give Daniel... Fortification and strength in those difficult days. And it's meant for us here as Christians today as well. Look again at verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. There's three things there that I want us to see. One, the people that know their God shall stand firm and take action. Let's look first at what the text means by people who know their God. In context here, these Jews, these people of God, had returned to their homeland by now and they were beginning to rebuild the temple. So they were people that were in exile in Babylon and then in Persia. And now, by this decree of this Persian Emperor Cyrus hundreds of years before were allowed to go back to the Holy Land of Israel and rebuild the temple and the walls and begin to resume their worship and the Mosaic Law. And Antiochus now is pouring out his wrath on them, and the way he does that before he starts to just destroy them, he starts to try and flatter them and when they don 't respond to his flattery, he then starts to pour out his brutality and We see here that there are people that know their God, there are some that will turn away to antiochus, but there are there is a faithful remnant of Israel that is not seduced by Antiochus they were they stayed faithful to god and for them in their context to stay faithful to god it meant that they would They would do the the temple rituals. They would perform the sacrifices. They would resume temple worship that they were not able to do for all those years when they were in exile. They, They remained faithful. They were people who knew their God. So what does that mean for us today to know God? Because this word is not just given to be an encouragement to Daniel, but this is the Holy Spirit writing through Daniel for the people of God for the ages. What does it mean for us as God's people today to be like these historic saints that that knew their God and withstood the flattery of this culture around them? Well, I, I think this means that we are people... That are not just culturally acceptors of religious ethics, but we are people that actually put our hope and our trust in Jesus. And I think this is a, a a particular vulnerability of people in our setting, in our culture, where it is still, to some degree, probably more than other parts of the world, certainly more than other parts of our country, it's to a large degree culturally acceptable to be a Christian in the South. And you can kind of get by with sort of just having an association with a church. And, And the problem is, is that many churches are so weak and watered down is that we sort of pass out false assurance as long as you just kind of say the right words and you know kind of occasionally pop your head in the door and you know whatever then then you're kind of okay with God but that is not what the Bible talks about when it talks about knowing God listen to the apostle Paul's word, words in Ephesians chapter 1 listen to how he describes knowing God Ephesians 1 verse 15 for this reason Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So this faith that they have in Jesus, and we're going to talk about what that means in just a second, produced in them love toward all the saints, even the ones who drive you nuts. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. This word knowledge in the original language doesn't just speak to you having a factual understanding of the Christian message, but it's an experiential knowledge that we would know, that we would love, that we would experience the love of God that can only be given to us by God's Holy Spirit, adopting us into His family. Verse 18, "...having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know..." Again, there's that word, this idea of knowing, experiencing... Tasting and seeing what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might. So how do we come to know Him? Verse 20, he begins to explain it. That He worked in Christ And so let me just summarize Paul's prayer there. He's saying that what it means to know God experientially is to put your hope in the fact that God sent His Son to live a perfect life, die on a cross bearing His wrath, and then rise again in victory over sin, death, and the cross, and now is exalted over every principality, every rule, every demonic force, and is in charge of everything. That's what it means to put your hope and to know Jesus. Not just some cultural ethic... That if you're a Christian, you should be a good little boy and girl and try harder. But that is the message that many people, if they just kind of accept, think makes them to know God. And nothing could be further from the truth. They are people that are not seduced by their culture. They are people that believe that God is holy, that mankind is fallen, and that the only answer is that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross, to bear the wrath of God, satisfy it, extinguish it, and then rose again in victory, and now commands all people everywhere, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, to turn from trusting in themselves, and put their hope in Jesus. That's what it means to to know God. And through Daniel, he is saying that when difficulty comes, there will be people who know God. So here's just the question. Do, Do you truly know Him? I'm not saying were you a member of a church when you grow up. I'm not even asking if you were baptized or if your dad was a deacon or if your mom played the piano or if you just you went to VBS or you were in young life or teen advisors or you were in a college bible study i'm not asking if your parents were christians i'm not even asking if you've been attending here for 6 months or 12 months or whatever do you believe that god is holy that mankind is hopelessly fallen because of his rebellion against God and that the only hope for any human being is that God would be gracious to them and open their eyes and give them the very thing that He requires of them that He would take their dead heart, breathe life into it So that they can see and behold the beauty of the gospel, the message of His Son crucified and risen, so that they can put their hope in what Jesus has done and His righteousness, rather than in themselves and their filthy rags. Friends, that's the exclusivity and the severity and the beauty of the whole message of the Bible. The message of the Bible to know God is not, well, you know, you kind of try and do better. Friends, most people in America operate on this false notion of karma. If you kind of try to do your best then God will sort of meet you halfway, pat you on the back at the end, and say, you know, you are mostly better than the poor knucklehead down the street. So yeah, here's your attaboy for trying hard. Come on in. Friends, many people who would consider themselves Christians live that way, and that's not what the gospel is here. It's to know God, to know that our only hope is that Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf, satisfied it, removed it, as Logan prayed for at the beginning, turns it into favor, and now gives us the very thing that we need, which is faith and repentance, so that we can put our hope and our trust in Him and be people that know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you, do you know God like that? And friends, don't overcomplicate it. I'm not asking you about your spiritual heritage. I'm not asking you about your biblical knowledge. I'm asking you, has God opened your heart and given you that gift of seeing and trusting in Jesus? And that is a miracle. That is grace. That is something only God can do. And you, right now, if you are sensing, if you know, I don't have it. I believe that's evidence that God is right now peeling back the the dead layers of your heart. And he's giving you the knowledge and what you need to do now is put, put, put your hope and faith in jesus you don 't have to understand it all you say lord i know i 'm a sinner you 're holy, I have no chance of this going right when I stand before you someday unless Jesus would take my place and that 's exactly what happened on the cross and so Father, I put my hope in Christ, people who know their God, then what do they do they the next phrase there they stand firm in the context of of this message to God's people in this 160 or so B.C. it meant that they did not let themselves be drawn away by Antiochus with his flattery and deception which after that didn't work then Antiochus began to pour out his rage on them and in historical accounts of his rule we know that he killed thousands of Jews in the temple When they didn't respond to his flattery and deception. No, they stood firm. So what does it mean for us to be people who stand firm? How do we stand firm in an age when our culture is against us? When it is becoming increasingly hard to be a person that believes the things that I just said Christians must believe. Like that is not a popular message. Right? So how do we stand firm? I believe that one of the primary ways that God has given us to stand firm is He has designed the community, the plot of soil, which is the local church, to be the ground that every Christian should be planted in so that we would stake ourselves to one another and encourage one another in these dark days. Listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I love this verse. We went through 1 Thessalonians about a year or so ago. And uh, I still think about this verse often. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14. This is what the life of a local church should look like. How they should interact with each other. Verse 14. And we urge you brothers. He's writing to a local church and how they should treat one another. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone." But the American church often has rewritten that verse. And it says, we urge you, brothers, don't pay attention to the people around you. Be self-absorbed about the fact that nobody's spoken to you. Be a little disgruntled that you don't like the music and that the preacher went too long. And then gripe and gossip about people as you walk out the door. And it's that's getting, getting a little intense. But Paul is saying to us that he has given us like each other so that we would live in such a way that we would help one another stand firm. And that is hard to do because we are sinners and we're weak and we're insecure and we're anxious and sometimes sheep bite each other. But God gives us each other so that we can stand firm. And friends, this is not just like, Some guy saying, I'm the strong Christian because I'm the pastor. And you boys and girls need to shape up and stand firm and do better. Oh man. I mean, I, I, I almost broke down in tears when we were singing that song, the first song. Christ has defeated every sin. Cast all your burdens now on Him. Listen, confession time. I believe that Christ has defeated every sin. I firmly believe that. But I need to be reminded of that often, because there are times that the battle and the discouragement that rages within my soul threatens to undo me. In fact, I remember a time—it was about a year and a half ago—and Reynolds, Counts, and Doug Duncan were in my office, sitting in the two chairs in front of my desk, and I was—I was—I was kind of whining. I was discouraged I was frustrated and I was pouring out my heart to them about how frustrated and discouraged I was about a whole host of things in the church and they listened and Reynolds as he is apt to do leaned forward in his chair and he says well I understand Brad but I know this and he looked at me and he said, next Sunday you're going to get up and you're going to preach the gospel. In other words, he was saying, suck it up and drive on. It reminded me of my buddy Luke Dodds in the mountain phase of Ranger, Ranger School 23 years ago in the mountains of Dahlonega and I had a blister on my left foot and it was cold, it was February, it was raining and I kept making this very feminine noise every time... I put pressure on my left foot, and I there's I have nothing against femininity or feminine noises. <laughs> if you're a woman, <laughs> but if you're a dude, you shouldn't make them. And I was every time I was putting pressure on my left foot when I had this big blister in the mountains of Delanaga, I was. <sighs> <laughs> And my ranger buddy Luke Dodds grabbed me by the collar and he said, Brad, if you keep making that noise, I'm going to throw you off the side of this mountain. (laughs) Then he said a few things that I can't repeat to you here. (laughs) But basically he said, suck it up, buttercup. And that's exactly what Reynolds told me that day. And I think about it often. And it helps me to stand firm. And God has designed our life together as a local church so that we would be a kind of encouragement echo chamber to stand firm. And I lament that there's a culture in America today and even maybe in our city where It's just kind of acceptable to sort of go to a church and do life on the outside. Dear, dear friend, don't live like that. Give yourself to the life of the local church. Yes, you will be disappointed. Yes, you will be wronged. Yes, you will disappoint people and you will wrong them. But all of that is woven into God's plan to give us grit and endurance and to fortify us and to toughen us up so that we would finally stop being absorbed with ourselves and give ourselves to one another so that we would live in a way that we can stand firm. And for once in our lives, we can live not for ourselves. And when we're not living for ourselves, something beautiful happens. We stake ourselves to other people and we are finally free to live a life on mission. And that's the last point that Daniel takes us to. He says, People that know their God shall stand firm and they shall take action. So they are people that don't dig foxholes and hunker down and wait for Jesus to come back and become increasingly angry at a culture that has fallen, no, they take action, they, they go out on missions. So what did it mean for the Jews in 167 B.C.? Well, in their context, there was this thing called the Maccabean Revolt, and they actually like, took up arms and revolted against the Greek Empire. I'm not necessarily saying that the church takes up arms and we have a sort of modern day crusade. But I think that this means that we take action and we go on mission. We be the type of people that bring others to this understanding of who God is. Listen to what it says there in Daniel chapter 11. The last few verses of our first text. Hebrews, Daniel 11 verse 33. So we just looked at the people that know their God shall stand firm and take action. And listen to verse 33, Daniel 11. The wise among the people shall make many understand. So they're they're not just there for themselves, they're, they're caring for others. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, verse 34, they shall receive a little help. Well God, couldn't you give us a lot of help? (laughs) They shall receive just a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. So it's saying there that there's these wise people who are mature followers of God, who stand firm and they take action and they help other people understand. In other words, they live in such a way that God uses their corporate life together to be the means by which He brings others to an understanding of who He is. Friends, that's, that's the Christian life. That God would do this in and through us as a local church and isn't that isn't that something where he says there they shall receive a little help I mean come on God you can do whatever you want to do you can humble this King Nebuchadnezzar as we read in Daniel chapter 4 you can make him turn into a beast and you can make hair grow all over his head and his body and you can just make him go crazy for a while and then you can bring him back to sanity and put him back in power you can part the Red Sea you can you can do whatever you want God why can't you give a lot of help to your people but God doesn't seem to work that way he seems to work in different ways for his glory and for his people and he works in different ways through us God why can't you cause somebody that knows you to run for President of the United States? Why can't you give us a better choice than these two? Why, why can't you take out ISIS right away? Why, why can't you do this, God? Well, He can. But sometimes He just gives His people a little help. And He calls them to live in a way that speaks to an onlooking world that there is something better than just these 80 or 90 years in peace and security here. And that something better is the resurrection. The end. The final victory of God. Listen to Daniel chapter 12 and we'll conclude with this. First few verses. And now in this vision he has fast forwarded all the way to the end. And he says, at that time, meaning the end of the age, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. I think that time awaits us. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. In other words, everyone who knows God through his son, Jesus Christ. And many of those who sleep in the dust, meaning those who have already died, sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In other words, there will be a resurrection in the end. And Jesus will come back, and He will resurrect everybody that has died, and they will either, because they are in Him, live with Him forever, or they will be separated from Him forever in eternal, everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so in a book written thousands of years ago, God gives his people a message of the whole span of human history. He's telling us that he will triumph in the end. And those that know God will triumph. And they will stumble. In other words, sometimes they will be taken captive. They will, they will die. They will receive just a little help. There will be Christians in Egypt that will be captured by wicked men in ISIS. And they will have their heads severed on a beach to be put on a video to be put all over the web. There will be Christians in Iran and Iraq that will die as martyrs as they stand firm to the end. There will be Christians in our country who will be persecuted for their faith. But there is coming a day when Jesus will return and everything will be made right. And on that day there will be only one thing that matters. Do you know God through his son Jesus and what he has done in his cross and his resurrection. That should put steel in the spines. Of Americans in Columbus in 2016. Let's pray. Father, who is sufficient for these things? We need your help. For my brothers and sisters in this room who are trusting in you, we are anxious. And Lord, we need for you to fortify us. Help us to stand firm and take action. May we not turn inward and build bunkers. But through the life of this local church, would you make many to understand? Would we continue to send out missionaries to dark corners of this earth may young couples and old couples and single people in this church be called to give their life away for the sake of the gospel to the faraway nations and to our neighbors down the street and may we all lean forward into that day when the dead in Christ shall rise and Jesus will finally and fully vanquish our foe Lord, until that day, may we stand firm. And for my friends in this room who came in not trusting you, Lord, as they hear these words and as they hear these testimonies of your salvation and the lives of these four people being baptized, Lord, would you do what only you can do? Would you give them a heart that believes and trusts in Jesus, not one that understands every complexity and has answered every question, but one that has simple trust that you are holy, we are fallen, and we need an advocate. And his name is Jesus. And he bore your wrath. He satisfied it. He extinguished it. He rose again in victory and now offers life to all who will turn and trust in him. Lord, give that gift sovereignly by your grace to those who don't know you even now.